Turn to Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17. Now, some things that are interesting that, that I'm, I'm learning as I'm going through this, okay? This is, as I've been studying Isaiah, I'm basically learning along with you. This is not something that I took a class on ever before. I really wish that I had. There was a class that I could have taken, um, but I, it wasn't part of the, the, the time frame that I could in school. And so I didn't take this class in Isaiah, and I have kicked myself for the last 13 years because I really wish that I had. So literally, I... Uh, told you guys a number of months ago, I bought over $200 worth of commentaries. I have eight books that sit on my desk every week. And every single Thursday for about seven to eight hours, I sit at my desk and I read through those commentaries, learning as I go about this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. And so I've learned a number of things this week that are really cool that I need to share with you. This particular sermon is more didactic than it is anything else. The term didactic simply means instruction, means teaching. Okay? So we're going to be teaching you things this morning. Um, I'm noticing some of you with your cameras out. Feel free to take pictures of the screen. I'm not going to leave them on the screen long uh, because I have a lot to go through. But get your cameras out and just click, 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 click. Or later on we can talk about it and I can email these to you. Um, but we are looking at Isaiah chapter 17 today. But before we get into that, one of the things that I learned that I, in my reading this week that I didn't know in the previous weeks is from Isaiah chapter 14, 13, 14, all the way to 23, there are these oracles, these burdens that, are, that they're called, that are prophecies against the different nations that are around Judah. And as, we, as I've said to you before, these prophecies that are spoken against these nations were not letters or speeches or, 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 or sermons that were spoken in the presence of those enemies, but it was actually spoken to the leadership of the nation of Judah because God was trying to get their attention. Isaiah had access to the, to the palace and access to the uh, temple during his time. And as a result, he was speaking these prophecies, these words of utterance to the leaders of the nation of Judah. The ones who were truly following Jehovah, the only true God. And so one of the things I learned this week that if you take the time to look at, if you'll turn just if you've got your Bible open, turn back a page or so to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24 to 27. And you'll see, if you have headings in your Bible, that that's a prophecy against Assyria. And I preached on that a couple weeks ago. But then if you go to 20, Proverbs, excuse me, Isaiah 14, verses 28 through 32, you'll see one that we didn't cover. And that was the, the prophecy against the Philistines. Well, if you look at the map, and again, I don't have a map here. I've handed maps out to you over the last number of weeks. I hope you have them. If you don't, just refer to a map later on. If you look to the west of Judah, you'll see that's where Philistia is. The Philistine people live. And so Isaiah chapter 14, verses 28 through 32, is addressing the enemies of Judah who live to the west. Then if you look in Isaiah chapter 15 and 16, which is what we looked at last week, you'll see from the compass point 
that the prophecy is against the enemies of Judah who live to the east. Today we are looking at Isaiah 17, which is a prophecy or an oracle or a burden, which is addressing the enemies of Judah who live to the north. And then in the next week or two, I haven't learned whether or not I'm doing one or two weeks yet, um, Isaiah chapters 18, 19, and 20 address the enemies of Judah who live to the south, Egypt and Cush. Cush is also another name for Ethiopia. So what has happened is Isaiah is addressing these words to the leaders of the nation of Judah, where the capital is Jerusalem, and he is literally saying, look to the west, look to the east, look to the north, look to the south. Hear the words of God about your enemies. Okay? So that's what we're looking at today is the enemies to the north, Syria and Israel. Now there's one other problem in this. And again, I wish that I could get it on the screen, but the, the, the map is just too cluttered and too crazy to put it up on that screen. If you look at your map that was given out a couple weeks ago, you will see Ammon, A-M-M-O-N, which is Syria, which is modern-day Syria. At one point, it was Turkey, but it is modern-day Syria. But you'll see it referred to in some biblical uh, passages as Ammon, A-M-M-O-N. You'll see it referred to as Syria, and it's all the same. Okay? So having said that, we're going to now look at the division of chapter 17. Okay? Chapter 17 has 14 verses, and the way I'm going to look at it this morning is verses 1 to 3, then 4 to 6, then 7 to 9, then 10 to 11, then 12 to 14. Scholars are not 100% in line with all of this. The way that they, some scholars divide it up, they say 12 and 14 should actually be with chapter 18. Others say 12 and 14 belong with chapter 17. Others say chapter, verses 12 to 14 don't even belong in there. Some people say 7 8 don't belong in there. Ah, we're looking at 17 this morning. Okay? And if you read something different, that's okay. They have a different opinion. We're looking at chapter 17 of Isaiah this morning. And I'm just going to take us through 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9, 10, 11, 12 to 14, and then we're going to wrap it up. So, Isaiah chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Let's look at those verses real quick. An oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Arawar will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the, like the, the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. I just realized, I told you, Ammon, it's Aram. Sorry. It's been a long morning. Aram, A-R-A-M, not A-M-M-O-N, Aram. All right, now, having said all of that, I said to you that this prophecy was against Syria or Aram and Israel. So why is it talking about Damascus and Ephraim and Aram? Oh, this is stupid. Isaiah, why don't you just make it easy? 
Well, the reality is he was talking to people who knew. If I said to you, I'm heading to Juno. You know what Juno is, right? Where's Juno? Say something out loud that's being recorded. Okay. And what is it? In relation to the whole state of Alaska, what is Juno? It's the capital. If I said to you, what is the capital of Iowa, Mary? What is the capital of Iowa? Des Moines. Des Moines. If I said, what is the capital of uh, Michigan? Anybody know Michigan? Minnesota. Anybody know Minnesota? What about Illinois? No? Okay, nobody from Illinois. Okay, no, but I'm saying, it's a geography question, okay? What is the capital of the United States of America? Washington, D.C. What is the capital of Syria? Damascus. What is, what is the capital of northern Israel? Samaria. Okay? So why is the northern Israel... With the capital of Damascus, uh, the capital of Syria is Damascus. Then why didn't Isaiah say Isaiah? I mean Samara, some, Samaria when he's talking about northern, northern the, the, the nation of Israel. And what this is, Ephraim, E P H R A I M, is another way of defining or dis- identifying the northern kingdom, the Israelites, because it was one of the twelve tribes. He was, and actually Ephraim was one of the children of Joseph, which kind of convolutes the whole thing. But anyway, Ephraim is used as a term to represent northern Israel or the north kingdom, the ones that were in rebellion against God after Solomon died. Okay? So, these verses are talking about Syria and Ephraim. And we're going to talk more about why they're combined in these 17 verses, I mean 14 verses, um, later on. But just know that this prophecy, even though the heading says it's an oracle against Damascus, it's really against both Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, also known as Ephraim. Alright, item 4 through 6. You see, in, this, in these passages, it says, In that day, the glory of Jacob, who's Jacob? Northern Israel. Represent, Jacob represents Israel. In this case, he's talking about specifically northern Israel. Why can't he just say what he means? I don't know. I didn't write it. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when a reaper gathers the standing grain and harvests the grain with his arm, as when a man gleans heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet some gleanings will remain as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, what does this mean? Quite simply, it's this. We have three different object lessons, if you will. Isaiah is saying, the glory of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be like someone who has a wasting disease. Someone who was healthy and robust, maybe 180 pounds and strong and vital, and now because of their wasting disease, they're 93 pounds. They're just barely hanging on. They're just barely living. 
In addition to that, he uses the object lesson of harvesting grain, okay? And back then, all of the wheat or the oats or the barley or whatever it was that they were growing was harvested by hand. They didn't have combines, they didn't have machines. They literally went through the fields grabbing a, a, a group with their hands and then with the right hand, they had a handheld sickle and they cut it off, okay? It was not the most efficient way of harvesting because they would leave things or maybe some would fall out of their hands as they were moving on because they would grab a bunch, harvest it, tie it off, and set it aside. Grab a bunch, cut it off, tie it off, and set it aside, okay? So when it's all said and done and the harvesters have finished there would be some pieces that had fallen out. There were some along the edges that they maybe didn't get. And by law, by the nation of, of Israel's law, the law of Moses, they could not go back and pick them up. If the harvesters dropped some, or if some were left standing along the edges of the field, those were for the poor to come and glean from the field. Okay? Same thing with the olives. The olive trees, they would have sticks, and they would go up into the olives, and they'd hit the branches to make the olives fall, and then the women and children would gather all of the olives that had fallen and put them into baskets and halt, go off to the next thing. Well, if there were branches that were way high in the tree, and they couldn't reach them, or they hit the branch two or three times, and the olives just didn't release, they were not allowed, as a harvest part of the harvest process, to go up into the tree and actually harvest it any further. Whatever God ordained was to stay in the tree was left for the poor people. Okay? So Isaiah is using some very natural, understandable ideas, object lessons, for the nation of Judah. Because... It makes sense. It's what would work for them. They're an agricultural company, community. They understand what their law says. And so when he says, the glory of the nation of Israel is going to be like somebody who got sick and wasted away almost nothing. Or, the glory of the nation of Israel is going to be like what's left over after the harvesters go through a field. Or, the glory of the nation of Israel is what's going to be left up in the high, high branches of the olive tree. Just a little bit of life left. Not much. Just a little bit. So basically, these three verses are saying, there's going to come a time, O nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, you high and mighty who think so great of yourselves, you're going to find out that your glory is going to go down to nothing. There's still going to be life. There will still be a remnant. God is not going to wipe you out completely, but you are not going to be what you were. Okay? Verses 7 through 9. In that day... Men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, their strong cities, which they left because of the Israelites, will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation." There is, there it is, um, there are three things specifically that he's talking about, Isaiah is alluding to in these three verses. First of all, he talks about altars. Now, in the nation of Israel, or in, in what I should say, the people of God, the people right now are Judah, because they're the only ones that are staying faithful to God, there is a centralized place for worship, and there's only one altar that's supposed to be used for sacrifice, and that's the bronze altar that Moses commissioned and had made, and was in the temple. 
But King Ahaz, who we're going to learn about in a little bit, commissioned another altar that he wanted built. And we'll talk about that in a second. So what Isaiah is talking about here in this reference to altars that man has built, he's talking specifically about that, that abomination that got brought into the temple. And we'll talk about that in a second. In addition to that, even during the time of Solomon and kings that have followed in, in northern, northern Israel as well as Judah, there were these high places up on hills where they would erect what are called Asherah poles. And it's basically a place of worship of false gods. Okay? And then ruins. What this is talking about is back when Joshua was leading the people of Israel across the Jordan to take over the, the land of Canaan. Moses had taken them through the, the, through the desert and then Moses died. And then Joshua took over leadership of the nation of Israel and he took them into the promised land. It said in the, in the, in the Bible, in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, it says that God literally cleared out these fortified cities that the Canaanites were living in and gave the land to the Jews, to the Israelites. And so what Isaiah is referring to in, the, in chapter 17, verse 9, when he talks about these desolate ruins, verse, verse 9 in, in Anime says, In that day their strong cities which they left because of the Israelites will be places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. What he's talking about is this. <clears throat> when Joshua led the people of Israel into the, nation, the, the land of Canaan, God literally cleared out these fortified cities, and they literally fell to ruin. And so even in Isaiah's day, they could find ruins of those old fortified cities that had been occupied by the Canaanites. And Isaiah is saying, your glory, O Israel, northern kingdom, who's doing all this stuff that's wrong, is going to be just like the glory of the Canaanites. You see those ruins over there in the woods that nobody occupies? That's what your cities are going to be because of what you're doing. Okay? Your false altars that you've brought into my place of worship, your altars to false gods, and even your glory of your own homes, all of it's going to fall to ruin in that day. That's what God is saying. Because you need to turn to me only. And if you don't, there will come desolation. Um, verses 10 excuse me, and 11. This one was really interesting as I was reading. I had never heard this before. You have forgotten God your Savior. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, and on the day you set them out, you make them grow, and on the morning when you plant them, you will bring them to bud, yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. <clears throat> what in the world is that talking about? Well, again, we don't live in that time. So we have to kind of guess at what he's been saying, but scholars are convinced... What Isaiah is referring to is this. There is, in Greek uh, mythology, there is a god named Adonis, A-D-O-N-I-S. In Mesopotamia, which is Syria and all of the, the central part of the Middle East, it was Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. Same story, basically, two different cultures. Okay, other nations, other cultures have similar, but this represents this this 
God that, they're ta- that Isaiah is referring to, that, they, um, that this practice that they're doing in verses 10 and 11, you have forgotten God, you have not remembered the rock, your fortress, you have set out the finest plants and plant imported vines. Though on the day you set them out, you make them grow, and on the, listen, on the day you set them out, you make them grow, on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud, and yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and curable pain. What Isaiah is referring to is this. In this, this culture that worships this false god named Adonis or this false god named Tammuz, and actually Tammuz is mentioned in the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 14, if you want to write that down for your notes. It's not important to us today, but it's Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 14. talks about false worship of the false god Tammuz. What this is, is Tammuz was a god who died for six months. And then he would come back to life for six months. And then he would die for six months. And then he would come back to life for six months. And they would literally cry and wail and mourn over his death with the hope that he would resurrect again so that there would be fertility, so that they would have good crops. And this idea of these choice vines and these foreign plants, what they literally would do is they would put these pots out and they would, they would literally force them to, to grow and bloom in, 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 in the heat of the day, but it, it would, they, they cultivated them in such a way that they would sprout almost in one day. And they would harvest in one day. And then within a week, they were just dead. But it was part of their worship. And so Isaiah is saying, you are putting your hope and your trust in something that is false. And you expect it to be this going to be this great harvest and this great reaping. And the end result, folks, is because you've forgotten who God is and you're not putting your trust in the rock, all you're ending up with is falseness. And you think it's going to be glorious and wonderful and happy and great, and it's not. And you're deceiving yourselves. You're falling away to deceit. Verses 12 through 14. He talks about, oh, the raging of many nations, the rage like the raging sea, oh, the uproar of the peoples. They roar like roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when, they re- when he rebukes them, they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. In the evening, sudden terror. Before the morning, they are gone. This is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. Okay, what this is talking about is this. Roar of waves. <laughs> Have you ever been to the ocean? It's loud. The roar of the waves, what he's talking about, imagine this great army has come around you, and you hear this, this roar, this noise of power and great and awesome, and oh my word, you'd have to be afraid of it. And God is saying through Isaiah, it's that roar of those nations that have come up against you, it's like chaff blowing away in the wind. The word, the Hebrew word that's translated here, uh, tumbleweeds, and it depends on what translation you have. Sometimes it'll say tumbleweed. Sometimes it'll say swirling, swirling dust. The word, the Hebrew word is galgal. G-A-L-G-A-L. And what it means is something that spins and runs away. Or something that spins and, and goes away. It's of no consequence. Tumbleweeds are dead and have no impact. Chaff and swirling dust just goes away. It's not of any value. 
And that's what God is saying through Isaiah about the fear that they have over these great nations that are coming against them. You hear this roar and you're worried and scared, but the reality, folks, is it's chaff. It's swirling dust. That's all it is. And the end result, verse 14, he says, in the evening there's sudden terror, but in the morning they're gone. This is the portion of those who loot us. The lot of those who plunder us. They think they're powerful. They think they're great. They think they're wonderful. They think they're glorious. And all that's going to happen is they're going to come to nothing. Okay? So this one is kind of disjointed. Okay? Basically what this is talking about, it's a prophecy that Isaiah is giving to the nation leaders of Judah saying, do not be afraid of these nations, of these enemies to the north. Syria, and northern Israel, there's nothing to be afraid of. They're making a lot of noise. They're going to come to nothing. And the end result is this. And this, this is where it's all coming from. In the history, there are four names. Pekah, Rezin, Jotham, Ahaz. Okay? Pekah is the king of northern Israel during this time frame. Rezin is the king of Syria during this time frame. Jotham is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel during this time frame. Jotham is confronted by Pekah and Rezin, who have formed an alliance because they're afraid of Assyria coming. Okay? Assyria is the Babylon, the big nation power. And so Pekah and Rezin, Syria and in northern Israel, have formed an alliance to fight against, to repel Assyria's onslaught. And they go to the neighboring country to the south, to Judah, and they say, join with us and fight against this person, this, this king that's coming against us. And Jotham is like, ah, uh, and he falls over dice. Literally. He dies. We don't know the whole story. All we know is that when all of this was going on, Jotham never does anything. He dies. And his son Ahaz, not Ahab, but Ahaz, now has responsibility for the kingdom of Judah. And he has these two kings above him who say, you need to join us. And it says, if you'll turn with me to Second. Kings chapter 16, this is the story. We don't have time this morning to read it all, but this is the story of Ahaz of Judah. And what Ahaz did when, when Rezin and Pekah came to him, he said, I have nothing to do with you people. So what he does is he goes around them and he sends envoys to the king of Assyria. The king's name was Tiglath-Pileser. And he says, if you'll take my enemies out who are to my north, I'll honor you. And he literally takes the wealth of the nation of Israel, takes the gold and the silver and the bronze out of the palace and out of the temple. Now remember, Solomon's temple was covered, plated, completely gold everywhere, and he took it all out. And he sends it to the king of Assyria. He says, if you will be my ally against my enemies, Pekah and Rezin, I will submit to your authority. Because you're a big guy and I trust you. And Assyria 
says, of course. And so Teglef Blesser, if you go back and look at the chart that I gave you a couple weeks ago, you will see that Teglef Blesser comes and takes out Syria. And a number about a decade later, he takes out northern, the northern kingdom of Israel. And then about 70 years later, he comes against Jerusalem to take out Judah. And we remember that story because the son of Ahaz is Hezekiah. And when the king of Syria comes against the nation of Judah, the king's name at that point is Sennacherib. Sennacherib comes to attack Judah and Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the grandson of Jotham, who is a follower of God, Hezekiah is, Hezekiah goes before God in the temple. He says, oh God, oh God, oh God, help. What are we going to do? And literally, God in one night killed 180,000 of the army of Assyria and they withdrew. And then Sennacherib is later killed while worshiping in his own temple. So God here, 70-something years earlier, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, Don't go into any kind of allegiance with anybody. Just trust me. Trust. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Trust me. Don't worry about Pekah. Don't worry about Rezin. Don't worry about their alliance. Don't worry about the fact that Assyria is going to attack them and then come to you. Don't worry about any. Just trust me. And at verses 12 to 14, Isaiah is saying to them, Look, in one night, I can take out all of that. Regardless of how big they are, how strong they are, how horrible it looks, I can take it out in one night. Trust me. But what does Ahaz, what does Ahaz do? He says, oh, no, 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 no. I trust the big guy. I form an alliance with the big guy. I give him all of my wealth. He protects me. And literally, when he goes to Damascus to meet with Tiglath-Pileser, he sees this altar that has been made in Damascus to the false gods up there. And he goes, oh, that's a nicer altar than I got in my temple. I want one of those. And he literally has a hand sketch made. It says it right in 2 Kings chapter 16. He has a hand sketch made of that, te- that altar. And he sends it back down to the high priest. And he says, I want this thing built in the temple. And he literally, it says, if you read the history, he had the altar that was the one that God ordered from the very beginning, moved off to the side. I'll use this one when I'm seeking God's will, but the rest, when we're worshiping, it'll be on this altar, because this one's glorious. This one's fabulous. This is, is the one I need to do. And it also says in the Word that he removed all of the things that were trappings of the king in the temple in deference to the king of Assyria. So even in his worship, he's submitting to a, a guy. Instead of the God. So as I was reading all of this and studying all of this and going, well, this is really interesting information, God, but what in the world does it mean to me today? I read this quote from one of the commentators. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. In the scheme of these oracles, the Lord has affirmed that he sovereignty, he sovereignly governs world history to make and keep his people secure. He never revokes his promises and the way of salvation for Gentiles is to submit to Zion and its king. But Ephraim, northern Israel, is here found seeking security in Damascus, not in the Lord. 
failing to trust God's promises and reversing the intended salvation to the Gentiles. And I thought about that last statement. Reversing the intended salvation to the Gentiles. When God made his covenant with, the, with Abraham, what did he say? I will cause your family, your people, to be a blessing to all nations. It is through Abraham that David was born. It was through Abraham and David that Jesus was born. And it is through Jesus that all nations, all human beings, have a hope of salvation. And so the whole point and purpose of Israel, whether it was Judah or the northern kingdom, was to let their light so shine before men that the people of earth would see their good deeds and glorify their Father who is in heaven. That's what Israel was supposed to do. And because the leaders were not listening, even when God himself was speaking through the prophet Isaiah, of, wake up! Wake up! Do not look at this! It's false! They didn't listen. And the end result was their glory fell aside to nothing. Their blessing fell off, literally. God just pulled his hand of blessing back and said, I won't let you die. You won't go down to zero, but you're not going to be much. You're going to waste away to just about nothing until you learn your lesson. Because the end result is all nations have to be blessed because of you, so I'm not going to let you die. I have to keep my word, but I am not going to let you continue in the path you're on. I'm not. You have to come to understand, I am God. There is no other. You must serve me, period. End of discussion. If you can't get that, there will be a price to pay. And for me, that's what I'm walking in right now. Let my light so shine before the people of my community so that they will see and be glorifying God. That's what I want to do. I don't want to align myself with anyone or anything that takes my attention, my allegiance, my worship off of God. I only want to be for Him and Him alone. That's why I, I am learning. You heard me say at the beginning of the service, you know, I tried and 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 I finally prayed and then it worked. Pray first for heaven's sakes. God's teaching me after 40 years. And I'm sure some of you are probably in the same boat. The last resort is prayer. When the first thing you should do is get on your face before God. And say, I can't handle this. And this is overwhelming. And this is way bigger than me. But I'm not going to lose my faith or my trust in you. I'm going to put my hope in you. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on you and you alone. And I'm going to trust you. You are my rock. You are my fortress. And it doesn't matter how horrible it looks or how big the roar is that's going on around me. My focus is only on you. And help me, God, to continue to shine the light. Because the whole purpose is to draw people to Christ. Not to show that I don't have trust or faith. And so that's the word I have for us this morning is trust God, nothing else. Make him your rock. Make him your fortress. Anchor your life in him and him alone. 
Don't trust anything that looks strong outside of God. Because it will eventually hurt you, fall, fail. Let's pray.